Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 11. We begin the third and final chapter of Israelology this morning. As we have been moving through this incredible book of Romans, a foundational book to our faith, and really an understanding of why we can believe and trust, have faith in, our Lord's faithfulness. But as we consider the tiny nation of Israel, as we have over the last two chapters and continue again this morning, we recognize that this tiny nation is a hotbed of historical and modern hostilities. Many of the modern world just recently have booed its existence. They have sought to overrun her small amount of land and to wipe out the name of Israel forever. Yet she remains, having been subjected to slavery, abuse, animosities, threats, and allies turning their backs on her. She remains. Why? That's the thrust of Paul's conversation with us this morning. You see, what is it about this tiny nation that attracts this kind of attention? I believe Scripture would indicate that she has a special place in the plan of God. And while she is rebellious against Him, He will use a remnant of her to demonstrate His incredible mercy and faithfulness, even for you and I. That we not only see it, but we also proclaim it. You see, as we have seen the hostilities escalate this past week, my thoughts have often gone back to Israel. What we are experiencing is something that Israel has experienced throughout their history. And yet, what is it about this tiny nation, this tiny nation, that God continues to preserve? Well, the idea that I want us to focus on is this. God has and will always maintain a remnant of Jewish believers as an indication that He has not cast aside this rebellious people. God's not done with Israel. And because He is not done with Israel, you and I can say with absolute certainty that we should love Him and nothing can separate us from that love. You see, Paul is getting to the question that we began to ask in chapter 9. The question that was lingering over from chapter 8. He is now going to address, and we have the indication right in our modern headlines today as to why we can trust in His faithfulness. And so as we prepare to study Romans chapter 11, this last chapter of Israelology, let's go back to our Lord in prayer. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the people of Israel. Lord, the theme of our choruses and our songs today has been uh, your faithfulness. And we sing of your mercies and we sing of your abundant faithfulness. As we not only sing about it this morning, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be attuned to it. As we see a demonstration bar none, that illustrates the truth that you are not done with your people Israel, that you continue to be faithful to them even when they are faithless, that you continue to respond to them when they are unresponsive to you. Lord, we recognize at the same time that we who are Gentiles have a responsibility and a role, and we will get there in the weeks to come, but today we recognize that this tiny nation of Israel represents a people that has been the fulfillment and will continue to be the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and to David, to Jeremiah. I pray that this truth would not be lost upon us, that the weight of this would be something we truly hold dear because this is the evidence that we need to say that truly nothing can separate us from your love. And as such, we need to respond. We must respond. 
And so I pray that that would be our heart's desire today. Casting aside the selfish burdens, looking ahead to the glories uh, that are yours and that we have the opportunity to praise you with this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd give me an understanding of it, that I may proclaim it boldly and passionately, and that it would be accurate according to your spirit. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We move into the final chapter of Israelology in this book of Romans. Paul's desire has been all along since chapter 9 somewhat of a uh, side effect to what he is actually accomplishing. Because his desire is that you and I understand that we could have confidence and we must have confidence in the love of God. Because twice in the chapter 8 he tells us that we should have confidence, nothing can separate us, and he tells us that those who love the Lord are those that he works together, those things good and profitable for them. And so in understanding this, we recognize that that's Paul's desire, but in doing so, he has revealed a whole lot about the nation of Israel. And in revealing the whole uh, magnitude that he has, we recognize then that God is still working through this people. And he has revealed his heart as well concerning Israel. He has in many ways revealed not only his heart, but the Lord's heart as well. And so now he begins to reveal Israel's response to those things. How does Israel respond, not only to Paul's heart in chapter 10, but also to the Lord's heart in chapter 9, and really seen throughout all three of these chapters? And so we begin by asking the question that really started it all. Has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected Israel? And then we're going to have to understand something. We've studied election in the past when we've looked at First and Second Peter. We've seen election as we've moved through the book of Romans but now we're going to bring it down to God's choosing, and specifically as it relates to the nation of Israel. And then finally, we're going to look at Israel and election. This isn't a political election, this is a spiritual election, God choosing. And He's not only chosen individuals, but He has chosen the nation of Israel. And that is something that is unique, that you and I must grasp. And it is a difficult concept that we find here in this passage. But as we get there, we recognize that God has a significant role for Israel to play, yet future for us even today. And so as we begin that look, we begin by asking this question, has God rejected Israel? Verse 1, excuse me. Scripture says, I say then of chapter 11, verse 1, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. You see what Paul begins with, In asking this question, has God rejected Israel? He says, not even possible. It's not even possible that God would do that. But in order to understand this flow, we must understand the structure of the passage. As we look at verse 1, notice the first three words. I say then. Then look at verse 5. It says, in the same way then. Then look down at verse 7. What then? You getting a theme? And understanding what's going to take place? Paul is bringing us along, but notice he doesn't stop in the text we're going to stop with. Continue on in verse 19, or rather verse 11 first. It says this, I say then, I say then, in verse 19, you will say then. You see, Paul is bringing us along in this progression, and it all started because of the last verse of chapter 9. So as we look at this progression, we specifically have to understand it in context to Uh, Chapter 9, verse 21. So look at chapter 9, and it's actually the last verse of chapter 10 we're going to look at in just a moment. Uh, But 
uh, chapter 9, verse 21 first. And this is where we are working our way through. And he says this, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? This is the basis upon which he is building. And then he says this at the end of verse 10, verse 21. He says this, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So we have two pictures. We have one of the Lord working through this this pot of clay, using what He's going to do with it. Some for honorable use, some for common use. And then He says, And I have stretched out my hands to an obstinate and rebellious people. And so the question that comes to mind in Paul's mind is, since this is true, has God cast aside Israel for just a common use? Just a common use. We left off last week as the Lord is opening His hands and His arms to bring about a disobedient people to Him, but they rejected Him. Opening the door for the Gentiles to receive salvation. And we have several events taking place that we need to keep under keep in categories that we can understand. First, we have the nation of Israel. And God has specific promises and blessings for them, of which we're going to look at today. But next week, we're going to catch a glimpse of the Gentiles. And we're going to understand the Gentiles' role in that. So do not get the two confused. Because if we get the two confused, we lead to a poor hermeneutic, a poor study of Scripture. And we will fail to understand what Paul is really saying. So we recognize in verse 1 that he is asking the question, considering the fact that Israel is a disobedient people, considering the fact that the Lord uh, does what He will, He makes them for purposes, for useful and for common. And because of that, in verse 1, we have this question. Has God rejected Israel? Has he cast them aside because of their response to him? And Paul uses his strongest possible, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is not even remotely possible. Given the very character and the promises of God, it is not even possible. The sheer idea, and I want us to understand the weight that Paul has placed on this. The sheer idea of this question is almost blasphemy to Paul. Has God rejected Israel? Absolutely not. The idea of that is ridiculous and absurd, and Paul says so here. And as evidence to it, Paul presents Exhibit A himself. Has God forgotten Israel? Look at Paul. No. Look at the pedigree that Paul gives to us of Jewish heritage. He says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and of the tribe of Benjamin. What he is saying is, I have the pedigree to be the Jew of the Jew. And if you remember his his background as Saul, he was Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is as Jewish as they come. And he is saying, look at me as the example that God has not yet forgot his people. Because if God would have forgotten his people, Paul would have been the last one to be saved. And I love Paul's response because it it is as if he is saying, if I can be a recipient of salvation, so can anyone of God's chosen people, Israel. If I can come to know Christ as Savior, so can any of the Israelites. And this leads him to some choices that were made. Verses 1 and 2, and really uh, ties in with 3 as well. So let me read 2 and 3. It says, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says about the pas- uh, in the passage about Elijah, that he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophet, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they are now seeking my life. 
You see, as we look at the choices made, we recognize that we have to understand a couple words. Because of the differences in the individual's foreknowledge, God's foreknew you as an individual, and Him foreknowing a nation of people. And so first, we must look at the word reject. And the word reject, it doesn't, uh, or rather it means to push aside or to cast aside. To, to lay off for, for no good reason. So this directly answers the question. Did God cause them, reject them, and put them into common use? Paul's answer is no. They have not been rejected by God. They have not been cast aside by God. So that's the word reject. And we must recognize His people. What does His people mean? Well, in verse 1 and verse 2, verse 1 we have the context of the entire nation of Israel. Well, in verse 2, we have to keep it in context. We cannot ascribe new meaning to it in verse 2. Because if His people means the entire nation of Israel in verse 1... It does in verse 2 as well. So look at verse 2. It says, uh, God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknew. Now you and I who are Gentiles, who have understood foreknowledge, who have uh, studied it and looked into it, we recognize that God foreknew those whom He would choose before the foundations of the earth were laid, First Peter chapter 1. But in understanding this, we must also recognize that God not only chose individuals, He chose a nation. And He foreknew that nation. And so if God has chosen and foreknown a nation, will He reject it? Paul says absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because not only do we must look at the word foreknew, but we must also look at the word uh, that is here, foreknowledge. And foreknowledge is the same word that is used of you and I who believe in Jesus as Savior. He foreknew us before the foundations of the earth were laid. In other words, before you had a chance to do good or bad, God foreknew you. He knew that you would come to know Him as Savior. So because of that, what did God foreknow about Israel? Well, He chose them. And what He foreknew about them was that they were going to be a rebellious people. But had they had a chance to act? No. So because God chose them before, will He abandon His choosing today that they lived up to His expectations? No. He chose them regardless. So as the believer looks at this passage, we recognize a correlation. The mere fact that Israel has not ceased to be a people, nation or not, they are still a people. The mere fact that they have not ceased to be a people indicates to the believer that we have the same blessings and privileges of those who have been foreknown. We cannot be cast aside. But while the individuals of Israel will largely reject the truth of the gospel for this time, the people of Israel will be preserved by God through the remnant. And that is where Paul leads us now. Because of God's foreknowing and because of His promises, there is a remnant preserved. The remnant preserved. And he introduced this idea to us in chapter 9. But now he's going to build upon it as he reveals, as Paul uses the illustration of Elijah, a low point in the history of Israel. And to illustrate this, uh, he, he goes right to 1 Kings. And he quotes... From uh, Elijah here in verse 3, it says, They have killed your prophets, and they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are now seeking my life. But in order to understand the context, keep your finger here, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, because this is where this event takes place. And I'm going to give you a little background, and I want you to kind of follow along. In, it. in chapter 19, we find Elijah having... Uh, started to flee for his life. Well, what led to those events? If you turn back to chapter 18, we begin to understand 
uh, what has been going on. In chapter 18, Elijah challenges the priests of Baal. And he calls them up onto the mountain and he, he somewhat mocks them there as they are unable to call fire down from heaven to burn up their offering. And he, he has a place for his offering after they have tried all day long. Elijah takes his offering. He pours water onto it. He, he does everything to keep it from catching on fire. And then he calls heaven, fire down from heaven, consumes that offering and the next. And the people of Israel turn back to God. Or at least they indicate that they would. And they destroy the prophets of Baal. That is the context of what is going on. So Elijah has been used of God, and this is at the lowest point of Israel's idolatry with the evil, wicked king Ahab, as well as his even more wicked queen Jezebel. And Elijah has brought a huge victory. But Ahab tells Jezebel of the events, and Jezebel swears to kill Elijah, being so confident that she even sends people to go tell him, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah flees for his life. Chapter 19. In chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, we have the context, of the immediate context of what Paul pulls out of verse 3 of chapter of Romans 11. He says this in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Kings 19. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Can you imagine the low point of Elijah? Here's a man who has gone from literally the spiritual heights to the depths of despair. And this passage leads to the beautiful passage of the Lord being in the gentle breeze. The quiet breeze. The Lord graciously and kindly takes Elijah through. And he, he shows him fire. And He shows him the great wind. But it is in the small, still voice that the Lord reveals Himself to him. What an incredible passage of comfort in the midst of a world of chaos for Elijah. Everything was falling apart. Elijah goes from the spiritual high to the lows of despair in an instant. Yet the Lord reminds Elijah that he is faithful. But turn ahead to verse 18. After all of this takes place, the Lord's not in the earthquake. He's not in the strong wind. He's in the still wind, the gentle blowing. Verse 18 says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What does the Lord promise Elijah? At the lowest of the low in the history of Israel, Elijah is promised a remnant. A small group. 7,000 is all. Who have not bowed the knees to the Baals. Who have not been used to follow after these pagan gods. And Elijah feels alone. But God reminds him that he will never cast Israel aside, even at the lowest point of Israel's idolatry and wickedness, the Lord has saved for Himself a remnant. A small remnant, but a remnant nonetheless. And that is where we begin to move into verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 11. And the Scripture says there in verses 5 and 6, oh, by the way, we'll pick up 4 while we're doing it, but what is the divine response to Him? I have kept for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And here you have an interesting uh, reality that becomes apparent to us. You have the security of the remnant. Because if God has promised there to be a remnant, He is going to protect that remnant. Elijah says, Lord, the prophets have all been killed. I alone am left. And now they are seeking my life. And what is the Lord's response? Yes, the 7,000 are there with you. 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Paul reveals now the why behind it. And he tells us that he is likening his time to Elijah's time. Notice what he says there in verse 5. But in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. Paul is going all the way back to Elijah and he's saying, As you look, Israel, as you look at the world around, at those Israelites who have rejected the Messiah, do not forget that the Lord has promised a remnant. And just like there is only a remnant today, there will continue to be no doubt, and there is the security that Israel will exist because of the remnant. And as he uses the word at the present time, he means not only during the time of the writing, but no doubt our time as well. And that is until the time of Israel returns. God has, by His grace, kept a remnant, even at another incredibly low time for Israel. Paul, no doubt, felt the pain Elijah felt. The people have abandoned their God, yet God has not cast them aside. And Elijah gives them great hope. And he reminds the Gentile believers, never, never abandon Israel, because God has not. And Israel may be at a low point, but God has not abandoned it. And he brings them now into this question. Grace or works? Grace or works? In verse 6, Paul reveals a stunning truth for the ones seeking to work their way into God's favor, which is what Israel was trying to do. Remember what he said about them? He said, I testify concerning Israel that they are zealous for the Lord. That they they have a passion for the Lord. And so they are trying to work their way into God's favor. They're trying to fulfill their interpretation of the law of Moses. But it is not right. Because that was not the intention of the law of Moses. And they have twisted it nonetheless anyway. But if Israel would have been selected based on works, and this is what you and I must understand about election, whether it's a nation or an individual. If the nation of Israel would have been selected based on works, that selection would not have been and cannot have been permanent. Because are they going to fail? What about an individual's election? If you were elected based on works because something of merit inside of you, are you going to fail? Yes. You see, there are some parallels, even though it is the nation of Israel and the individual Gentile. The election works the same. It is by grace. It is by grace that you have been chosen. If Israel would have been selected based on works, they would have failed because grace is necessary. And if it is possible to work... Grace would not have been necessary, would it? If you can work your way there, would the Lord have had to demonstrate grace to you? Absolutely not, because you could work your way anyway. But instead, grace is necessary because it is not possible. As it is working, that will fail, but grace will never fail. Israel receives grace from God because they did not deserve it. One commentator says of this, "...the existence of the remnant, whose faithfulness was their own meritous achievement." would have had no particular hopeful significance 
for the unfaithful majority. But precisely because this remnant was preserved in accordance with the election of grace and not on the basis of works, its existence was a pledge, a pledge of God's continuing interest in and care for the nation, a sign of God's faithfulness to His election of Israel as a whole. You and I who are believers can have tremendous hope because Israel was elected as you and I are elected. Now there's different areas of this doctrine that we're going to explore later. Election means chosen. What were you chosen for? As believers, you were chosen for salvation. As Israel was chosen to be a special people of God, that doesn't mean they all received salvation. But when you recognize your election, you recognize the power of your election. It wasn't by your choosing. It was by God's choosing. It wasn't by your working. It was by God's grace. And so in understanding that, Paul wants us to understand this truth, that this remnant was the indication of God's election of the chosen people of Israel. But then he continues, and he explores this a little more in the election and Israel. And the question is, let's look at verse 7. What about the chosen? Verse 7. The Scripture says, What then? What, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Paul is about to reveal a very difficult aspect of this doctrine of election. Some are chosen, some are not. So what does this look like? Well, he begins here in verse 7 with the chosen. The chosen. Paul, now having established Israel as unique among the nations, now he begins to dissect the group a bit more. Israel has zealously pursued the law of Moses as they have seen it in order to establish righteousness. Yet they have not obtained it. Why? Because that's not what the purpose of the law was. But it is deeper than that, Paul says. Because there are those of Israel who are a remnant who have obtained it. It is not as righteousness by works, but righteousness by grace. So Paul says this. You have two sides to this. You have... Israel, who has chosen to disobey the law, to, or to follow the law zealously, but in disobedience to God. And you have the other side, who has not worked, who has obtained it. And that's kind of an ironic situation, is it not? Those who do not work for it, obtain it. Those who did work for it, did not. The people of Israel are still, though, responsible as individuals to receive Messiah as their Savior. While they are chosen to be God's people, they are still responsible to receive the Messiah as their Savior. And the Lord has promised a continued, non-stop number of them that will do so for the sake of Israel. But not all all Israelis will do so. So when we look at the nation of Israel today, and we see the hostilities of today, and we see every um, many nations in the Middle East who are attacking Israel, want to attack Israel, we see Russia and others who are assisting even in those nations, we must ask the question, what happens if Israel is obliterated tomorrow? Does our faith change? No. Do you know why? Because the people of Israel still exist. Because there has been a remnant chosen by God to continue to exist. So the nation of Israel can be obliterated tomorrow, and our doctrine doesn't change. should not change. If it does, you've got to change your doctrine to match what biblically it says. The Lord has promised a non-stop, continued number of Israelis who will come to know Christ as Savior. So what about those who are not recipients of grace? What about the other side, the hardened side? Notice what he says here as we finish out the chapter at the end of verse 7 through verse 10. He says, 
It has not been obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. First, we must understand the syntax of the word hardened. And we look as we look at those who are hardened. The syntax of that word reveals that an outside source has done the hardening. In other words, Israel themselves didn't harden, although they did, but specifically, outside sources have caused them to be hardened, specifically to this context. And so it is not Israel herself. And this is supported by Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, from which he quotes, from which Paul quotes here in verse 8, revealing that God is the one who gave them a spirit of stupor. And you wonder, why in the world would God give them a spirit of stupor? Well, he's going to answer that question in verse 11, which we're going to look at next week. But he's got some things we must understand. The word for stupor reveals a strong blow, like a concussion. So you have God giving Israel a strong blow, causing a concussion, and it causes a spirit of silliness and unresponsive actions. You know, what have we gotten into as we get into this passage? To many of the Israelites, both in Paul's day and our own, they see and hear the gospel, but they cannot really perceive it. They do not understand it. They do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. They do not accept Jesus as the one who came to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Even though it can be all laid out for them in the Old Testament, all to the year, they still do not believe. They've been given a spirit of stupor. And Paul quotes... Then, as we move into verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And Psalm 69 is seen as one of the most important messianic psalms along with Psalm 22. And yet, in the midst of a powerful messianic psalm, comes the truth that those who rejected Him would receive judgment. And this is specifically David asking for uh, his enemies to fall, those who would challenge him to uh, find their table to be a snare to them. And I want us to understand this faithfully. David is asking for deliverance from and judgment upon his enemies. And Paul's use of it here in Re- Romans chapter 11 suggests that those of Israel who have not responded to the gospel have now had the tables turned on them. In other words, they be- have become the enemies of God. So why did they receive the spirit of stupor? Because God hardened their hearts because they had rejected Him. Why did they receive a a spirit of, of judgment? Because Israel was an enemy to God. And so God caused their eyes to be blinded for a time. The picture of the table becoming a trap reveals uh, at its source the illustration of their blessings now becoming the opposite to them. So all the blessings God gave to Israel have now become their trap. All the blessings that were supposed to have been for Israel have now become a snare to them. And one of the blessings that came to Israel was the Messiah. Paul says, because the Messiah came through them, because they rejected Him, I've given them a spirit of stupor. I've given them a concussion. So that they cannot see, can they cannot hear. 
MacArthur writes this, The Jews had considered God's word to be their spiritual sustenance, which it indeed was. But because of their rebellious unbelief, the word became a judgment to them and a stumbling block and a retribution. The illustration continues as their eyes are darkened and like a blind man wandering along, feeling every inch of the way, they are restricted to the darkness and they are bent at the back, wandering, looking, feeling ahead. And so that is the image that Paul leaves, verse 10, Israel in. Wandering around, looking, feeling their way. But I'm just going to give you a highlight of verse 11. And this is where we're going to be next week. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? When you understand that question, the answer to that question, you see God's incredible mercy and faithfulness to a rebellious people. He didn't throw them away. He didn't get rid of them. He caused them to have a concussion so that they couldn't see and didn't understand, but He didn't throw them away as a people. And then He says this, May it never be, but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Why was Israel given a spirit of stupor? So that you and I had an opportunity to come to know Christ as Savior. And that in doing so, we would make them see the light. And they would too believe. Well, God has not cast aside Israel. And by preserving a remnant, He stands at the ready to bring them to redemption. We recognize that He is waiting for verse 11 to take effect. The truth that is laid in that verse But Israel's disobedience and continued rebellion has brought upon them judgment that was designed and intended for their enemies. And yet because of their rejection of one of David's line, they see the table that has become the snare. Yet despite this, God's faithful outstretched arms of chapter 10 verse 21 still waits. And in the meantime... A remnant is preserved by grace, not by works. It is preserved by grace so that the nation of Israel will see the fulfillment of promise. And they will be given everything that God has granted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything that God has promised to uh, David, to Solomon, and to Jeremiah. It will all be the Lord's. But we have to understand Israel's condition now, and it is not pretty. Israel is continuing to be a rebellious and obstinate people. Even once they are back in their land, they continue to reject their Lord God. And because of that, they are still receiving the spirit of stupor. But very, very soon, that will all change. And verse 11 will take effect. And then it becomes the Gentiles who are warned. You and I are warned as we finish out the remainder of this chapter. But as we do so, we praise the Lord for the time we can spend in His Word today. And this gives you an opportunity, a place to begin your study as we close in a word of prayer. Father, I do thank You and praise You for the privilege that it is to spend some time in Your Word today. Or as we look at it, the the news isn't necessarily good. And we see Israel in a spirit of stupor that has been hardened by You, caused by You. But at the same time, we see the side effects of that. The side effect being that we who are Gentiles have the right and the privilege to become joint heirs with Christ. Lord, the weight of that is something that is almost indescribable. 
that your chosen people would be given a spirit of a stupor for the Gentile to believe. But we also recognize that Gentiles have a task, and that is to make Israel jealous, to make them understand that the gospel message is true, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that they must return and repent. I pray for the nation of Israel, that as a people, they would return to you. They would come to know you as Savior. And that we would see the fulfillment of the promises made and the prophecies concerning the end times come to fruition. As we see the events of these days, we recognize that the end could be very short and it could be years away yet. But we want to live as Gentiles who are making sure we are fulfilling our task. And that is that we should share the gospel message and fulfillment of the Great Commission, but specifically to Israel, to make them jealous, to make them see the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful, find us obedient. As we see the events of the news media presenting out to us, I pray that it would not cause us to despair, but would cause us to get to our knees, to pray for this tiny nation of Israel, to pray for the remnant that you have preserved for yourself that will one day be the fulfillment of the promise. Lord, we love you for your faithfulness because it is what causes us to recognize we have a tremendous hope in our own belief, that we have a tremendous power in our salvation because of you. And I pray that this would impact our hearts and our lives, not just for the moment, but for the rest of our earthly life and the rest of eternity. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.